Okay, we have a bunch of things to do today. We're going to do a little open on Summer League because Chet was awesome in Utah. Speaking of Utah, Chris Mannix is going to be there. Uh, we have a ton of good stuff with him. The future Donovan Mitchell there. We'll do some KD Kyrie stuff as well. Uh, and then we've got Joe Manganello talking about his career. And he does life advice with us as well. So we'll have some fun with that. Enjoy. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. It's weird where it doesn't feel like summer, but Summer League always reminds you it's summer. Um, maybe it feels like summer for you, but it just feels like the work keeps going through the draft and free agency. That's like, oh, that's right, it's July. Uh, and it was a reminder it was Summer League with everything that happened with Chet Holmgren in his first game for the Thunder. Uh, he was awesome. He hit every shot. He gave you the, the Dirk step back, knee up. It was basically like all these other guys on Utah's team didn't know anything about Chet Holmgren. And you can tell... Maybe they did know, and they're like, I'm going to take it to this skinny dude. And then it's like, wait, <laughs> he blocks every shot. This is really hard to finish at the rim. Um, no, I'll get him. No, I'm going to take this guy. I'm going to take it. Nope, he, he volleyball spikes my dunk attempt. So it was really good, and that means it made Magic fans feel really bad because you're watching it going, wait, is this guy going to be awesome? Is this guy going to be like, a transformative type of player who just all of a sudden your organization is totally different. And by the way, now Paolo Boncaro is not playing. You know, he he hadn't played yet. You know, he'll play tonight. So watching it all play out on social media because it was the first chance to get to take a look at him, um, there's a couple of things we need to remind you of, all right? So let's just kind of run through it. First of all, and I looked this up. I don't know how accurate to the, the digit this number is, but apparently it's about 75% of the players that you'll watch in Summer League are never going to be on an NBA roster. Um, so there's that. I remember when Trey Young played in Summer League a few years ago. And remember, there was two different Summer Leagues that he played in. Trey played in the Utah one, then was in the Vegas one. Because if you look at the overall numbers, you're like, wait, why did Trey Young, why is everybody always dog him for how bad he was in Summer League? Well, it's because he was terrible in the three games that he played in the Utah League. He shot 12 of 52 overall. 
for 23%. And from three, he was three at 24, a hefty just south of 13% from three. Um, he even actually missed a million free throws in this game or in those games as well. And because it was Trey who led the country, I believe, in scoring and assists and then couldn't make a shot, it felt like as he closed out the college season. And more importantly, it wasn't what he did at, didn't do at Oklahoma. Um, and that team wasn't very good. It was what Luka could potentially be. It was trading out of the spot for Luka to take Trey Young. All right. So that's why there was even more focus on Trey. And then there was a bunch of, oh my God, this guy sucks reaction. And as I always joke about Summer League, I only care about Summer League if it reinforces my opinion on a player. And it's a joke because I don't like, I'll admit, all of us probably have, if you like a guy and he's really good in Summer League, you're like, yeah, I kind of knew it. And then if he stinks and you didn't like the guy, you're like, yeah, yeah. And then there's just a bunch of other results that don't even mean anything anyway. Uh, let's run through some first team. Summer League recipients. Again, each year there's five guys named to the uh, first team Summer League. I don't know if it's all Summer League, whatever. Uh, Jordan McRae, Alan Williams, Doug McDermott, Glenn Rice, not his dad, Tony Snell, Doug McDermott again, Ghani Lawai, remember him? Georgia Tech. Derek Character, Jermaine Taylor, Dominic Jones, Reggie Williams, Sam Young. There's an old joke in there, except it isn't a joke. He was all summer league at age 25. I think the oldest recipient I've ever seen, at least in modern times, as scholars would point out. Alonzo G, shout out Spencer Hawes, Craig Smith, BC, Vaughn Wafer, Ike Diagu. Now, there's some better names recently. If you look through some of the all summer league stuff and some of the MVPs, you're like, wait, you know, that guy's pretty good. Like, yeah, you know, some of the younger players, first picks, get out there. Let's see what you got. So I think it's actually gotten a little bit better. I'm not going to run through a historical transformation of all Summer League award winners. But when it comes back to Chet, the point is this. He's supposed to be good, right? He's a guy who could have been number one. And all, all of us all of us that did anything with the draft, I don't know that there's anybody that didn't love the guy or what he could potentially be. It was just the fear of what the downside could be. But like anybody, when you start talking about rooting interest, um, I started thinking about this again. I'm not a Magic fan. I don't care. We'll have Surudi jump in here in a second. Because uh, he and Kevin Clark jumped on a Spotify live. And I think there's 3,000 people listening to it. And there's a fear because you're a Magic fan, at least in this case. You're like, wait, did they screw this up again? Now, I would point out, if you look at the history of the Magic drafts, it always felt like in recent history, and I'm talking like the last seven, eight years, however you want to frame it, it always felt like the draft kind of stopped before their pick. Not to say that there were other good players that they passed on later on, but the way it felt going into the draft, like, is this a three-person draft in that first tier? Then it felt like Orlando would have the next pick. Um, the tough part with the Scotty Barnes, Jalen Suggs thing is that Barnes was not supposed to go forth, at least on some of the ranking stuff. It was thought to be this coup. They got Jalen Suggs. It's pretty clear Scotty Barnes is going to be pretty special. Uh, I actually think they would have taken Scotty Barnes if he had been fifth. So there's a pattern of this happening with Orlando. But in this case, they have the number one pick and they pass on Chet, who for a game uh, against Utah, where it was with Utah Jazz announcers, kind of be like, hey, I got to tell you, this guy, uh, He's making some shots out there, you know, and they're like still kind of selling the jazz side of it while it's supposed to be a national broadcast. It's somewhat neutral. Uh, and Chet missed a bunch of shots in the second summer game that he had. None of, none of this truly matters other than if he were going to be this guy, even at the number two pick, he's supposed to be good here. And if you were physically overwhelmed, that wouldn't mean write him off. Um, and just like just like some of these other performances that we've seen. I, I, I think it's just it makes sense that he was going to be pretty good because he's a really, really skilled player. And by the way, at Gonzaga, they ran the fourth most amount of plays for him. 
there's three other guys that were higher priority in that offense than there were for Chet. So him just getting more shots, playing with Giddy, and on top of that too, Oklahoma City, you start to look at like some of the young pieces they're putting together. It's a really fun team. And, you know, he had he had a great, great intro uh, into the NBA world, which face it, a lot of people probably reacting to it hadn't really dug in and watched him. And then you're watching it going, wait, another team passed on him, which then leads to the angst of if you are a Magic fan, you're like, did we screw this up? I was trying to think of a comp for this because this is a good exercise to run through when you think about like, okay, which teams do I care the most about? What's what's like my biggest, my peak fandom? And your team missing out on somebody that you had a chance for, whether it be in the NFL draft, um, basketball, I would say baseball free agency was a big one for me, or even at the trade deadline. I remember being really pissed that the Yankees got Jeff Weaver once. I think it was 20 years ago. I was like, oh, man. They got Jeff Weaver. Didn't really work out for the Yankees. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. Jose Contreras going to the Yankees was another. Like that would be my peak stuff. It'd be the Red Sox not getting a guy, and then the Yankees end up getting him. And apparently, the Sox thinking they were all the way in in Contreras. You'd have to go back and read all the stories. Apparently, Theo Epstein broke a chair in a hotel room. I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's true or not. Because uh, he was so upset about not getting him. I think Contreras was with the Yankees for two years. But that made it even worse because it was the unknown. Because there's this unbelievable extra value in the unknown. And that kind of gets us back to draft picks. But for most people, we've watched these draft picks because unless they've played completely overseas like a Luka and you're looking to find this stuff, there's there's stuff you can find whether they played in college or you know you pay deeper attention to that. But when it's a, when it's a baseball player that's foreign, you know, I imagine there's other fan bases that missed out on Dice K Matsuzaka thinking, ah, oh, damn it. Like this guy, you, you're hoping, you're thinking that it could be something that you've never seen before. And it almost never is that, you know, it, it almost is never as good as you build it up. But the unknown part of it from Contreras, I remember just being so frustrated. And on top of that, the Red Sox not getting him, the Yankees getting him. So I bring in Saruti here right now. I can't imagine there's anything other, any other thing in your sports fandom. And you have a weird combo of things you're a Niners fan you're a Magic fan you hate baseball uh I don't <laughs> I, I don't know baseball, I just... yeah I, I'm sure there's probably some Premier League thing that goes on with you although wait you're you're a Roma guy so I refer I yeah I refer Roma they just want a trophy so what's up uh but I do my EPL team is Everton which I mean they're a disaster so all my teams um have had some random weird ups and downs um, but but, but let me just let me just frame it this way. This has to be the most anxiety you've ever had or will be about a player that you were there, you could have had him, and now whatever Paolo is, there's still going to be this haunting, lingering feeling of what Chet could be, be uh what he could become, is how I should say. Yeah, but I mean, remember back in what was it, the two thousand four uh draft, right? When it was uh Mecca Okafor and Dwight Howard, and they took Dwight and a lot of people were saying, no, you take you take the guy, you know, do you take a Mecca ch- champion in college? Like this guy's ready to go. Dwight's a big question mark. And obviously they they went with like the more you know, the, the more raw guy, and it was the right decision. Um, I'm not saying that's what's gonna happen here, but I think I, I coined the term it's Chet FOMO, and that's the problem, is that every time Chet does something like this, you're gonna have this like weird, shitty feeling if you're a Magic fan because he's gonna do some really awesome stuff a lot of times. And like, I'm not even saying like Chet's gonna have his struggles in the NBA. Like, I think that this came across on Twitter and maybe in our Spotify live of me saying that you know I I think he's gonna be this perfect prospect and because he succeeded in his first like ten minutes in summer league that he's all of a sudden he's gonna be a Hall of Famer. I, I didn't say that. 
I have just been along this entire time saying that Chet is going to be such a fun player to watch one way or the other. And I think he's going to be good that when he whenever he does stuff like this, it's going to be hard for Magic fans not to kind of feel like, oh, shit, this like this could have been our guy. Like, he's so fun. And again, this doesn't mean that Paolo isn't going to be fun to watch or isn't going to be good. Uh, I just I just know that the Chet FOMO is going to be a real thing. And I do think he probably landed in the best place for him in OKC. So he's going to be able to kind of like grow in a way that he might not have been able to grow in Orlando. And it's, you know, who knows? It's like an alternate universe thing. Like, would he be as fun in Orlando as he potentially could be in OKC? I don't know. But I was just excited as a guy who wanted shit, wanted the Magic to take Chet number one. I was excited to see him look that good in his first uh, in his first summer league game. And I don't think that's like a bad thing for me to say. I'm not saying that he's going to be unbelievable and that he doesn't have his flaws. I was just excited. Uh, I don't think you're telling the truth. I think you Uh-oh. hope he ends up not being good. No, 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 Ch- Chet. No, yeah. I, I, no, I would to, never do that. You wanted to I be do. a Hall of Famer? I do, only because I, I, I stuck my neck out. I mean, shit, this is like my first like real wait, wait. big so ringer you'd rather, take. You'd, ra- you'd rather be right about your draft analysis and have the magic miss out on this. No, 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 no. I wish they, I hope they're both good. Like I'm rooting, I, I yeah, like both. Paolo too. It's not like both I don't like Paolo. Right. But but like I'm not not rooting against Chet just because the Magic didn't take him. I'm rooting I'm rooting for Chet because I I would have taken him number one. And that's the thing is like people are like you know there were some Magic fans mad about you know why are you and Kevin talking about this? The Magic didn't take him. Are you saying that the you know now you're saying the Magic made the wrong decision? And Paolo hasn't even made uh, his debut in summer league yet. Well, I I said they should have taken Chet number one before the draft. Nothing has changed for me in the in the in the couple weeks since the draft, including one summer league game nothing has changed me i still think they should have taken chet so for me to say that you know i'm excited and like these are all the things that i saw him do you know all the 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 dirks you know the dirk step back and the pull-up threes and transition the ridiculous blocks all that stuff i'm like he's going to be a stat stuffer and he's going to be maybe the most unique guy in the entire league and maybe a top five league pass guy to watch all of these things i said before the draft and i still believe now and i also still believe paulo could still be a good player so I am rooting for both of them to be good, but I do want I do want Chet to be good because I think he'd be an awesome player to watch in the league. Okay. All right. Well said. All right. So that summarizes where we're at with that. And Chris Mannix is out in Vegas for Summer League, so we're going to talk to him. And then, a little bit later, as we mentioned at the top, Joe Manganello going to hang out and then also do life advice. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate. Is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack. Or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Chris Mannix, Sports Illustrated, also the Volume Network uh, podcast with Cowherd. He joins us. Uh, he was out in Salt Lake for the first part of Summer League. He'll be headed to Vegas here soon. So we we opened with Chet. Uh, and there's a bit of a reminder. It's like, you know, people did think he was going to be really good, but it was just so phenomenal in that first game. What was it like being in the building reaction, everything after? Um, well, look at it this way. If you are a Chet Holmgren believer, you saw a lot in that first game and in the first two games, really, to make you believe 
that this kid was going to be a star. I mean, he has an incredibly diverse offensive repertoire already to the point where you you kind of wonder, like, did Mark Few at Gonzaga know he had this? <laughs> like, he, You didn't see a lot of this stuff when he was in college. Um, he can shoot the three. He can play off the dribble. It's such an incredible advantage to have a guy who can catch the ball off the glass and go. I mean, the list of centers in the NBA that can do that is one. It's Nikola Jokic. And if Chet Holmgren can show he can do it consistently, he's going to be a, a dangerous offensive weapon for them. Um, good ball handling skills, all the offensive skills. So if you believe in Chet, you saw what you wanted to see. If you don't believe in Chet, you also saw what you want to see. Like, I, I talked to coaches there during the last couple of days, and the skeptics among them were like, yeah, he, he was knocking down three-pointers, but he was shooting those threes because he realized early in games he wasn't strong enough to get by guys. And if you watch the way he played defensively, yeah, the stat line said six blocks in that first game, few more in the second. But, you know, you also see guys like Kofi Cockburn and Kenny Lofton Jr., going into his chest and just barreling right through him. And these are summer league players. What's going to happen when NBA players take it to him? You know, what kind of quick foul trouble? I also watched him matched up with Taco Fall in that first game. And I was, you know, watching away from the ball a lot. And Taco was just, I mean, he committed like nine three-second violations that I saw. But like he was just planted in the paint and just pushing uh, Chet around. So if you don't believe in him, if you believe that the strength is going to be an issue, and it's going to keep him out of games and keep him from being successful uh, offensively. You saw that too. So I think you got you got a little bit of everything from Chet in these first couple of games. All right. That's about, is there any other summer league notes that we have to hit on from, from Utah? We're gearing up for the main event here. So, because right, I don't want to, I don't want to ignore or forget anything, but I don't also don't want to spend 20 minutes on summer league. No, I, I, I think that's from, at least from the Salt Lake Summer League, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. All right. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's stay in Salt Lake, though, at least for, for the Utah Jazz. Uh, you've known Ainge a long time. Um, you, you've covered it kind of locally, too, on top of nationally. Uh, I don't think this is a huge surprise, but help us try to figure out what the roadmap is here for the rest of what the Jazz are trying to do with this roster. I think the exit of Donovan Mitchell is an inevitability. Um, I don't know if it happens in the next two months. Um, but by this time next year, I, I don't believe Donovan Mitchell will be on the roster. When when Danny Ainge got this job, the one thing I knew is like he will not be satisfied with just being good. With Danny, you're either great or you're awful. Like there's no middle ground. He has no appetite for being a playoff team, a first round and out type of team. That's why he worked in Boston. Like Boston doesn't have an appetite for being a playoff team. Utah is a different city. It's a different market. Um, they haven't experienced the playoff success the Celtics have had in the past. They love Donovan Mitchell. He's the guy that guided him out of the you know post-Gordon Hayward mess uh, in Utah. But Danny doesn't care. He is the least sentimental human being when it comes to sports that, that I know. And the second he got that job, I figured something was coming. Then you have the Will Hardy hire, a five-year contract for a first-year coach. That tells you he's fireproof when it comes to a rebuild. The trade uh, for Royce O'Neal, obvious warning sign right there. Rudy gets dealt. I mean, these are all, this is a domino effect, Ryan. Like, this is all, 
you know, it, I believe the reporting out there, the people out there that are saying, you know, Jazz are going to build around Donovan Mitchell. I believe that's what they're being told. I don't believe that's what is going to happen because why would the Jazz, who are clearly attempting a rebuild, want to be the 11th best team in the Western Conference when they can compete for the 15th best team in the Western Conference? It doesn't make any sense. So my belief is that at some point, and it doesn't have to be immediately, it doesn't have to be before training camp, my belief is that Donovan Mitchell will be the next guy to go with this team, and it's a question of when, not if. Okay, I want to bring back the Hardy point, then a follow-up on Mitchell, because you're right. I remember when the Stevens thing happened, and it surprised everybody. It was like, wow, Ange grabbed Brad Stevens. And then it's like, he got a six-year deal, and that told you immediately, it was like, okay, they're going to they're gonna tear this thing down. And by the way, that that team wasn't exactly some amazing team that they couldn't tear down anyway. I would argue this Utah team is much better positioned than the prior Boston team. And then the weird thing about Stevens is that he wins 25 games that first year. Then they were just completely ahead of schedule. Like, I can't believe that team was winning 40-plus games. And then they're competing, and you're like, wait, this is weird. And so it's all happening. We start having all these, these Brad Stevens conversations. But that is a very important factor because that means that, all right, let's back it up. Why did why did Quinn want to leave? Right? Ainge has already been in place. They're offering Quinn Snyder extensions. Quinn's like, nah, I'm good. And no one thinks he's done coaching. So Quinn wants to leave. Hardy gets five years never coaching before. You're right. Like we're being told what's going to happen here, despite, as I have read as well, all these reports that Mitchell's staying. So now I want to pivot that into you know Ainge players. You know, when Marcus Smart was was drafted by them, I go, you know, this is the most Ainge guy ever. Like, if you watch Smart in college, you're like, no one should, we, we shouldn't have debated this. If Smart was available, he was taking a Smart personality over Randall's personality, let's say that. Mitchell, I could understand someone kind of talking themselves into Mitchell as an Ainge guy, create, aggressive, can shoot it a little and all this stuff. But I wonder if there's a disconnect of Ainge going, hey, I like him, but I actually don't think you're like a keys to the franchise kind of guy. So what do you think? Do you think Mitchell is an Ainge guy? No, I do not. Um, at all. He's a, I don't, at all. He's, he's a great player, but you look at the guys that Danny has drafted in the last decade or so. Um, you mentioned Smart. Brown, who was not a home run draft pick back no. in that draft, was booed on draft night, in fact by the collection of Boston fans that thought Chris Dunn was the savior of the franchise. Um, Jason Tatum, Robert Williams, uh, Grant Williams, a lot of these guys, same characteristics, long, versatile, can do a whole bunch of different things out there on the floor. I don't think Donovan Mitchell is as bad a defender as he was last season. I think he came in a little bit or a lot out of shape into training camp and that snowball for him on the defensive side, but he's never going to be a high-level defensive player. And he's kind of, you know, is his best position point guard or two guard. He's not really kind of a, a, a two-position player necessarily. So I don't I, I don't believe Danny Ainge looks at Donovan Mitchell and says, that's a foundational piece for the next five, ten years. We're going to build around that guy for the future. More importantly, you know, we'll talk about the market for Durant and what it looks like right now. In the coming months, the market for Donovan Mitchell, I believe, is going to be incredibly robust. Like Danny Ainge, he only makes deals when he smells desperation. He smells desperation better than any executive I've ever been around. He can, he can smell it from a country mile. And he smelled it on Minnesota. 
And he got Minnesota to give up all those draft picks. I like the victory lap, you know, Minnesota seems to be taking about not giving up Jaden McDaniels. Well, you gave up the equivalent of five first round draft picks. Let's not act like you didn't, you know, give up the store to go and get Rudy Gobert. There are teams out there that are going to give up the equivalent of that or more to get Donovan Mitchell. I mean, New York remains potentially crazy and they have a cache of draft picks, a young player in RJ Barrett, some other pieces they could throw in a deal. Miami, Tyler Hero, whole bunch of draft picks. If Danny Ainge and Pat Riley can ever get on the phone, well, they probably wouldn't, but like they, they can make that deal get done. Phoenix, let's say Phoenix doesn't get Kevin Durant. Well, the Suns could be looking out there saying Malik Bridges and all our draft picks could make a difference there. There could be a bidding war in the coming months for Donovan Mitchell amongst teams that are desperate to get him. Miami might see Donovan Mitchell as the guy that gets them on the Milwaukee, Boston, maybe Philadelphia level in the Eastern Conference. New York, if Jalen Brunson doesn't turn out to be the savior of that franchise, they may decide, look, we get Brunson, we get Mitchell, we got something there to build around in New York. Here's six first-round draft picks and, you know, R.J. Barrett or whatever. Same thing with Phoenix, who, you know, according to a good piece by Kevin Arnovitz, doesn't care about the draft anymore. Uh, so they might throw draft picks uh, in that that thing. So I, I just think, Ryan, there's going to be there's going to be teams that are tripping over themselves to make Gobert plus offers to Danny Ainge, and at some point he's going to take one of them. Yeah, but I would agree with the original point too. It, there's no, there's I don't think there's like a mandate for him. I don't think, and it wouldn't be a mandate from Ryan Smith. It would just be Ainge going. Well, I don't, I don't need to do it right now, and that's kind of the way he operates. And I, I totally agree with you. I also think there's this is something we haven't really talked about, but if it ends up being like another massive package where. Let's say in three years, there's a draft where it feels like four teams have 12 of the picks. <laughs> it could backfire a little for some of those teams. I don't, this is all just projecting ahead. But like, if you're a team going, hey, I want to I want a first or whatever. And then you're like, well, I have four of them. And it's like, yeah, but so do three other teams. <laughs> <laughs> like some of the pricing of what people will think those picks would be worth in a couple of years, it may not be the same if if you have multiple teams with multiple picks. Um, let's just move on from that then. All right. So it doesn't one thing about Mitch, one thing about the Jazz, though, like it, it just I go back to like where they are right now with Mitchell. Like I can count at least 10 teams better than Utah. If you if you're a Sacramento fan, maybe it's eleven at this point. So they're they're one way or the other. They're going to be mired in this below average, mediocre space. And that's not where Danny wants to be. If you're going to be bad, you're going to be really bad and you're going to mail it in. And that's why I think before the end of the season, we're going to see Mitchell get moved. Before the end of the season. Yeah, I think there's a trade deadline type of deal. Because again, those teams I mentioned, the desperation will be, you'll be able to smell it coming off them by February. What's the latest with Durant? So I, I talked to a couple of executives pretty regularly that that are well aware of what Brooklyn is is looking for. And every time I talk to them about the asking price, I, I get told much of the same things. They want two all-star caliber players and they want draft picks. And if you are prioritizing something, it's the players that they want. Like they want the draft picks, but they don't want, you know, one good player and six draft picks. They'd rather two good players and three draft picks. Like, they want to find a way to remain competitive. I, I think Sean Marks, you know, when Sean, someone said this to me the other day, like, when Sean took the job, he really didn't give a damn about those Celtics picks. Like, that wasn't his fault. Like, you know, if, there was, if the Nets bottomed out um, and they transferred some picks to Boston or they swapped some picks with Boston, 
all right, it sucked, but it wasn't on him. Like it was, that was Billy King's responsibility. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't take a hit for that. It, Sean Marks and the Nets front office, they don't want to give Houston good draft picks. Like one way or the other, they don't want to give Houston anything better than a middle of the pack or late first round pick. So they're prioritizing getting talent and staying playoff competitive, deep in the playoff competitive, whatever you want to call it. So that, that's what I keep hearing. They're looking for, for players specifically, and those players start out there right now. Um, there has not been enough traction or enough... I'm not sure what the problem is at this point, but the DeAndre Ayton-centered swap has not really crystallized right now for Brooklyn. And other than that, there hasn't been a lot out there you know, that, that teams are calling with that makes any sense. Nobody's giving up two of their top players. They're just not doing it uh, at this stage of these negotiations. So I think this is going to take a while. I really do, because as far as I can tell, the Nets asking price is too high for teams to really even think they're coming close to meeting it. Yeah, I mean, it's just not the way these trades work historically. We, you know, the team that's already established is trying to add. You have to be somewhat established to even be adding Durant. And those those trades, it usually doesn't mean like, okay, well, now we'll trade our star for your star because we like your star better. Now we just add them to ours. So they might get something back. That's where the New Orleans package is always pretty interesting. But do you hear anything on them being in on it? But then again, we've also learned, I don't care if Durant has four years on his contract left. If he doesn't want to be in New Orleans, you can't trade for him. Yeah, I think that's a bigger, bigger part of it. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that New Orleans has offered a Brandon Ingram centric package at this point. Um, it would probably have to be Ingram and somebody else as well. I think Herbert Jones is someone Brooklyn would want back in a deal, and that would make me queasy if I was New Orleans because you know, there's your best defensive wing, and you know some of this proved he can make three point shots plus traffic. It's just a lot, you know. I think New Orleans, you know, right now, you know, when I talk to people down there, it's not many, but occasionally, like they're just basking in the glow of getting Zion. Like they they got this guy's name on a contract, they figured it out. Um, I, I do think they'll be perfectly happy going into next season with Zion, with Ingram, with CJ, and seeing what they got. Like, how good are they with Zion? And if and if they're after the end of the season, one piece away from from winning a title, I, I just don't know if they believe they're there at this point. Which is why I don't think New Orleans is willing to go all in to get Kevin Durant. Nor am I sure if Kevin Durant wants to be there. I mean, it's it's a good team, it's a great city, as you know, but uh, I don't know that he is interested in playing there. Would you do Tatum and picks for Durant? No, 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 no. No, thank you. I'd do Brown and picks for him. No, I'm I'm not putting Tatum in that deal. Tatum, Tatum is Durant, like in a couple of years. Like I, I just I I've always said, I said this rookie year. I was on TV in Boston. I was getting laughed at saying Tatum's gonna be a 30 point per game score. Like I, I believe that. He's gonna average 30. And I I I wouldn't put him in that type of deal. The question the question becomes, Ryan, not would you do Tatum and picks? Would you do Brown smart and a couple of picks? to get him. And that's what I find interesting because you know, people's antenna that I've talked to went up after the Celtics acquired Brogdon because like, look, it's great to have depth, but at some point you've got 10 guys on the roster who are used to playing NBA minutes and that can cause some problems within a team. Like, you know, guys can say, I'm all for the team. I'm willing to reduce my minutes, my shots, whatever. But when it gets to like January and that's happening, these guys can get a little bit uh, curmudgeonly, for lack of a better word. Um, so, like when when that trade went down, I, I talked to people that wondered, now would Boston at this point throw Jalen Brown and Smart together and plug Brogdon into that starting point guard role? You've got Durant, you've got Tatum, you've got everybody else. Like, would 
the Celtics do that? I don't know if they would. I think Ime Udoka's got a lot of loyalty at this point to Marcus Smart. He's taken a public beating after the finals, which I don't think is entirely fair because you know Jason Tatum set an all-time record for turnovers in that those playoffs, and Brown kicked the ball around as well. And it was his first finals as a point guard. But you know that's something to kind of watch. Like, would the Celtics throw Smart into a deal because they have Brogdon, and would that be enough to get the attention of Brooklyn and trade for Kevin Durant? I agree with you in not trading Tatum. I don't think Tatum's ever going to be peak Durant, though. I I but would. I, uh, all right, but that, Durant's an all-time great, but like he's, you know, B-plus Durant. Let's call him that, like around that level. But you're also talking about something that I would agree with you in that it's like, you know, you could talk yourself into, hey, they're only a couple games away from winning a title. Why would you want to mess with this? It's like, I don't know where they're going to be at in the East. I like them right now. They're better. The Brogdon thing's a risk. Gallinari's a risk. I think maybe, even though I agree with like, when you have 10 guys that expect to be in a rotation, that usually can lead to some problems. But when it's Horford, who I think you want to, pace um even rob williams even though he's younger you want to pace that out a bit and gallinari and brogdon like maybe that's part of it like that i was always surprised and i had said this with bill on sunday i was a little surprised at the overwhelming like holy shit how dumb are the pacers reaction to the brogdon trade when it's like he's been available for over a year and that's probably the best they were going to do at this point like they actually do understand the market for their players better than maybe we think from the outside and there's and he's a not real... he's not an, he's not an alpha either like the he he thought he was an alpha going into that situation like that he was going to be the guy in indiana and that's that's just not his role like i'm less worried about gallinari gallinari is al horford insurance like you made that point it's correct like the celtics know al horford 36 years old they don't want to play him 70 games. They don't want to play him 30 minutes a night. Like they and he was play awesome. Him like, but he, he also, awesome, you but, could also tell like there'd be that next game after the other one where you're like, okay, that's what I expect from a 35, 36 year old guy. So go ahead. There, no, there, there are going to be nights that, that, you know, Al Horford will get a lot of rest. I think during this regular season. And when he gets rest, Gallinari is your starting power forward. The playoffs, I don't think he's playable in the playoffs. I really don't. I don't think he defends at the level they need to keep their defense as tight as it is, but that doesn't matter. He was brought in to be a Al Horford insurance for 30, 35 games during the regular season and a break glass in case of emergency guy coming off the bench. All right, last thought here. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a Nets thing going around where you're like, well, if they actually just played Kyrie, Durant, Simmons, Seth Curry, the other options, bringing Claxton back, which I thought was was really important. I thought he, I thought he well, again, in that version of the Nets, I really like him. Um, if he's if he's your second scoring option at times uh, with whatever group you'd have out there, that might not be the same feeling. Um, I don't know if the Nets would just say, hey, maybe we just see if this works. It's hard with Kyrie, the ingredient thrown into all of this. So what do you expect now on the Kyrie part? As I know we kind of made it through a week of the Lakers rumors, but you know the Lakers probably don't feel like they want to give in right now on adding assets. Although I would argue Westbrook not playing is better than Westbrook playing for the Lakers. So yeah, I, I think there's there's his merit to that. I, I look the Lakers are not getting Kyrie. This is what was kind of conveyed to me, unless they're willing to take back more money than they're sending out and attach a first round draft pick. So that probably means like I'm sure they'd love Seth Curry, but that probably means Joe Harris who has the bigger yeah. contract. Um, and look, you might say like, well, it's L.A. Why wouldn't they do that? Well, you and I both know the Lakers are a mom and pop organization masquerading masquerading as a multi-billion dollar franchise. Like they count their pennies in Los Angeles. If they didn't, Alex Caruso would still be a Laker. Like it's just that simple with L.A. So there's not 
a huge appetite in LA at this point to take on all the money they're going to have to take on to be a deeper into the luxury tax team and have to fork over a first round pick in return. So as long as that is the asking price, the Lakers are not going to get their hands on Kyrie Irving. And I don't think that the Nets will trade Kyrie until Durant is figured out. If Durant's still on the roster, I think Kyrie's still going to be there because I think the, the Nets, to what you said, will probably say, all right, look, let's maybe we'll run it back and we'll see what happens in, in February when we get to the trade deadline and, or maybe like into the season if the, if the Lakers decide to get a little bit crazy. Let's call some bluffs out there. Because right now, like right now, the Nets know they're, they're basically negotiating against themselves at this point. Our teams know they're negotiating against themselves uh, against, against Brooklyn. I'd be more confident, Ryan, about the Nets' chances of pulling off the bring everybody back and succeed move if they had a different coach. I've never been a Steve Nash guy. I, I thought the Nets were like, I thought they thought they were really smart and really cool when they hired Steve Nash, who was a part-time assistant, part-time soccer analyst when he took the job in Brooklyn. And he just, I just don't, I watched Ime Udoka coach circles around him in the playoffs last year. And Steve's not really confrontational, which I think you need to be with a group like that. And I think he has the potential to get steamrolled in a situation like that with all these guys coming back and not be prepared to handle it. So if they had, look, if they had Ime Odoka on the bench or somebody else with a little more, I think, toughness, uh, I'd be somewhat. You mean like Kenny? That, you mean like Kenny Atkinson challenging players? Fired, I mean, and, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. Look, the players like, got I, the players got Nash because that's what the players wanted. By the way, yeah. So which is was insane. Like by by the way, if you're Sean Marks and Sean Marks has gotten a lot of credit over the years, deservedly so. But like you watched Ime Udoka on that bench for a year. Like you can't tell that's a that's a coaching talent. You, like you you can't figure it out. I, I mean, not the it would have taken some real stones to like fire Steve Nash and elevate Ime. But I mean, crazier things I, have look, happened I in think, the NBA. I think they wanted Nash because the personality was supposed to resonate with with the top guys, and that hire that makes sense to me. Like they didn't want to be pushed by Atkinson. So you know, everybody was outraged by this Nash hire when it happened, and. I kind of looked at it as like, I think this is very telling that they felt like we need a different kind of personality, somebody that's going to relate to them a little bit more than just putting all the emphasis on the other stuff because they didn't want to be coached by Atkinson. They didn't care. You know, so like, I don't know. I think Nash gets beat up in all of this way too much when he was. Oh, no, he, no, 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 no. Look, yeah. he, he, look, his offense, I mean, come on. In the first round of the playoffs, th that was the most simplistic offense I've ever seen. Like, it really was. And, and look, I understand like you need Durant out on the floor to succeed, but like is Cam Thomas that unplayable that you can't give him five second quarter minutes to give Durant a little bit of a break? You will never convince me that the Nets would have been wouldn't have been better off if Durant had been given a little bit of a break so he wasn't on fumes in the fourth quarter of these games. Like is is Cam Thomas so bad that you can't give him a couple of minutes to reduce Durant's minutes from like forty six to forty one in these games? Well, I, I, yeah, I would counter that with we traded for a guy that stopped playing competitively because he wanted to leave. We have the Kyrie <laughs> part of this. We trade for Ben Simmons, who fucking shows up to practice telling people he's ready to go with his entourage and then jogs in his sweats off to the side and doesn't talk to us. So, yeah, maybe I could have played Cam Thomas a few more minutes, but are you fucking kidding me with this group? This is my <laughs> fault. So yeah, I'm I'm pro Nash in this argument because ultimately I think we try we try to find all these ways to blame everyone other than the players who just decided they didn't want to play. It is it is first and foremost the players' fault, but I, I don't look at Steve Nash as being this elite coach. Nor do I'm I not look saying at him he's, as being, I'm not saying he's Pat Riley, Chris. I'm just no. I think it's really funny. Saying, but, 
I love watching like a, an ESPN show where the former players are like, oh, and by the way, Steve Nash sucks. You're like, that's your priority on the list of things that went wrong this year for the Nets? No, no, no. He's fifth or sixth on that priority list. I, I just think if you're it, like, you're trying to spin this forward, right? Like, can it work? Like, I don't think Steve Nash is the guy that makes it work. I don't think he's the guy that glues this thing together and makes it work. I don't think that's in him. I'm actually somewhat like, and I'm not, I'm not even reporting this. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about, but like, is Steve Nash the head coach if they gut this team? Like, or does he be like, all right, goodbye. I'm going back to Bleacher Report. I'm going to call, you know, European soccer games. Like, is he, I mean, is he the guy? Like, do you think he's still there as this team rebuilds? Uh, that I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't would either, he want to do like, it? Would he want to do it? Or they just go like, hey, we're not going to make you come back. So we'll, we'll just, you know, <laughs> advance scout. Advanced scout. You could, you could take the Steve Clifford job that he just left behind. <laughs> Sit there and be a consultant. Hey, uh, enjoy Vegas, man. Thanks for the help as always. You got it, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Joe Manganello has done a lot of things, and we want to talk to him about uh, a bunch of those things. He's got a new show coming up, too, as well on AMC Plus, uh, July 7th. That'll premiere Moonhaven, uh, which when you understand more about Joe, I think a lot of this this makes sense. All right, so he's going over the resume. He's trying to just get updated, want to talk to you. And then I couldn't help but default back to Magic Mike, um, which I know where a lot of these interviews go. I'm trying not to do the same one that everybody else has done with you, Joe. But, you know, I think your role in in not only just being an actor, right? Like I'm always fascinated with somebody's a creator, you know, director, writer, producer, and you have this vision for what you want the story to look like. And if you were just to pitch this and say, hey, stripper wants to start a furniture company, doesn't get a bank loan, keep stripping. And you're like, how bad is this going to be? But whether it's Soderbergh, whether it's a script, whether it's all these things, like what is it like when you realize, wait, this is actually going to be a really cool movie in what could be straight to VHS, you know, a decade ago? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, the actual moment um, happened for me before we started shooting. So I, I read the script. I was on set in Atlanta shooting a movie called What to Expect When You're, when you're Expecting. And I, I was shooting with Chris Rock every day. And I remember getting off the phone and coming back to my chair. And I must have made a face. And Chris said, are you all right? I said, I don't know. I just got offered. It sent the script. It's about male strippers and he kind of made a face like ooh and he said well who's directing and Soderbergh and he went ah you gotta do it you gotta do it and yeah man but I got my shirt off on true blood all the time and now I'm gonna have my shirt off more man guys are gonna hate me he goes am I allowed to swear on this podcast please yeah he goes he goes motherfucker they're gonna hate your guts anyway okay 
He said, unless you have a sword or a gun in your hand and you're, you're killing like a thousand people, then they'll like you. Brad Pitt had a shirt off for the first 15 years of his career. He's doing just fine. And he's like, you got to do it. And so, you know, I read the script, but the script was like very dry, like your pitch, your elevator pitch of, you know, it's a guy, he wants to open a furniture business, but he can't get a loan and he's a stripper. Like that's how the script read. And Soderbergh was coming off of the girlfriend experience with, with an actual porn star, Sasha Gray. So I thought this is like another one of his like kind of dark, experimental, moody films. Because there were only little lines in the script like, you know, Big Dick Richie does the fireman routine, you know, or, you know, you couldn't see it and you couldn't see the humor. And a lot of the scenes with the guys that are in the movie, we wound up improvising. And while Soderbergh was setting up, he was listening to us talk about this nonsense. And he's like, just do that in the scene. And so those became scenes. But, you know, where, when I realized the tone and I realized like, oh, God, this is going to be good was, you know, there's a line in the script about Big Dick Richie uses the penis pump. And I thought to myself, oh, no, like, what am I, you know, am I just standing there in front of the guys full front? Like, I'm like, this is this is horrible. You know, I said, can I talk to Stephen, please? You know, before I say yes to anything. So Stephen shoots me an email that says, uh, yeah, call me at 1030 on Saturday. That should give me enough time to stop throwing up. <laughs> okay, this guy's got a sense of humor. Okay. So I call him and I'm like, what is going on with this penis pump? Like, what, what do you like? What does that mean? What, how are you going to shoot that? And he's like, well, he's like, Alex's character and, and Chan's character are going to be having a conversation. But in the bottom of the screen, blurry, this thing just keeps growing, like into their conversation, into the foreground, to the point where Alex, like, is completely distracted. Like, what is this thing? And then we're going to cut back to your face, like, struggling with the pump, and then cut back to the thing blurry, growing, <laughs> they, can't, they have to pay attention to now. And I just thought, oh, my God, like, he turned that little line it seemed really scary into something hilarious the way he was going to shoot it. And I just realized I was in the hands of, of, of a legendary director, you know, I'm a genius and it's like, I'll do whatever you want. I just, I said, yes, right then I said, okay, I'm in like, let's do this. This is, this is going to be great. I, I'm serious. Like it's so authentic. It, it doesn't try to be anything more than it's like, let's just peer in on this lifestyle and it doesn't have these like cheesy lines where it's like, well, I want to be a stripper. It's like, I can make you a no. better stripper. It's none of the, it's, it, you know, cause you don't need, none of that needs to be said. And I was watching your, your wedding scene where you, you know, you mock it up and you pretend you're getting married and then you put the girl in the sex swing. And I have to think like, if I was your buddy growing up, like, were they like, this is amazing. Or are they just dying laughing? Because you actually, I think you really nailed this kind of delicate lane of, you're a, you're a male stripper. So you're going to be a little cheesy, right? But you also got to be kind of into it, but you're also acting in the scene. And then, I mean, you know, that's going to be different than just a normal sex scene in a TV show or a movie, because then you're doing all this acrobatic stuff on everything else. I don't know what kind of feedback you got from it, but I thought you absolutely, you, you were exactly who that guy would be in that moment. Thank you. And what's funny is that I did bring a lot of my old, old friends from here. My, 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 my bros, you know, we watch Steelers and, you know, NBA playoffs together and, you know, and, and, and they were rolling laughing. I mean, they were laughing the hardest on anybody. So 
like they got it, you know? And yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a, there's a very fine line to like male stripper humor, but like it's there. I mean, and, 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 you know, what really helped me was before, before we shot part two, I directed and produced a documentary about a bunch of guys at a club in Dallas, Texas called La Bear. And amongst them was the oldest living male stripper in history. He was 55 years old at the time and had been stripping consecutively since 1979. So, and he lived with his mom, who was his dietitian and his biggest cheerleader and ran their stripper gram company six days a week, 10 in the morning till six at night. And she was like, just a firecracker. And, uh, and, and so we went down and shot this documentary about these guys and they were so like unintentionally funny. Like they kind of didn't know it, but like it came off like they were geniuses, you know, who just, they would nail these routines that had that sense of humor. So I, I remember screening the documentary for Reed Carolyn, the writer and Greg Jacobs, the director, they came over to my house and I showed it to them and we were crying, laughing. And they said, this is exactly what we want part two to be, which is about the guys with that sense of humor. And so that documentary really became like a tonal template for what was going to go on in part two. So if we go back to the beginning, because this is, this is good. I, mm-hmm. I know the sports background. I know you're a huge sports fan and everything else, but I think guys, you know, we're very different gender wise for a bunch of different reasons, but I I think women can be more supportive of their friends when it's like they want to try something different. They may not mean it, but they're publicly supportive. Um, Guys, especially when you go like, Hey, I actually think I want to get into the theater part of this. I always think that's a really tough pivot, especially when you sort of check all the alpha boxes. Uh, So what was that like for you? Once people decided, Hey, what's like, I know he's good looking in our town, but what's this guy's head at? Uh, well, yeah, once again, that's, that's a really good question. And, and, and yeah, it was that way. And I, I think jumping from, cause I played sports from the time I was a little kid and, and I was always head and shoulders bigger than the other kids. You know, I remember when I was maybe 10, I scored 37 out of 42 points in a basketball game. Like if you, if you think about that level of dominance at like the 10 year level, like old level, it must have the parents, it must have been ridiculous watching me just run block shots and run up and down the court and just lay it in. Well, how big were you at 10? I mean, I don't know how big I was at 10, but I know that like I was dunking before the summer before high school. Um, <laughs> I I was probably six two heading into high school. I wound up six settling in at six five and at sixteen, which which I'm unfortunately or fortunately or whatever it was that kind of dropped me off at center so i played center all the way through high school at six foot five which meant that i was like rodman i mean i was up against seven footers regularly guys who were six nine six ten so you know i was that guy who was i was aggressive you know like i just i was like you know um there was no lack of trying you know and i was strong so, yeah, I mean, it's like I'm this three sport cap. I started on the volleyball team when I was a freshman. So it was like I played three sports. I was the captain of all of them, you know, going over to like thinking of sitting at the theater kids lunch table at lunch was like a non-starter. That was not going to happen, you know, so it was a very daunting jump. The thing that did bridge that gap for me was my high school had a TV studio 
with teleprompters, cameras you could borrow on the weekends, and the full giant, you know, analog editing machines that you could put soundtracks on and everything. So um, I started sleeping with a pad and a pen next to my bed, and I started writing TV shows for my friends and casting them in these funny parody shows that I would create, parody game shows. I I made a feature-length mafia martial art action movie um, when I was 16, 17. Um, and it had like, you know, like the soundtrack was fantastic. We made homemade squibs out of condoms with Cairo syrup and red food coloring. We tie the condom off and put it over, tape it to a, a, a cookie tin. And we would either put it on somebody's chest or somebody's kneecap. And you cut a little bit of the fabric there and stick a little firecracker sticking out. And we'd roll camera. Somebody's hand have to come in, light the firecracker. Boom. And it would flap open and blood would squirt and we'd shoot, you know. So, and then we'd edit it, wow. you know. So it was like, so that was for me, you know, I was making movies. And and then my friends who I made movies with were like, you know, man, you could do this acting thing, man. We, we think you're really good. You should try it. So senior year, I took freshman acting classes as my electives. And it was me, you know, the big jock in the letterman jacket and the little freshman actors looking up going what is she doing here you know and the teacher came up to me and said you know why are you in this class are you just trying to blow off your senior year what's your story and i just said no i i think i could do this i think i could do this for a living and she's and then a couple weeks later she like begged me to try out for the high school musical uh which was oklahoma and I, 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 I went and I tried out and I, I got one of the leads. She gave me one of the leads. And um, so I didn't show up to volleyball. And at that point, too, mentally, I was set up to go play college basketball and I was going to go into federal law enforcement. That actually came off the table, too. And it was, no, I need to, I need to try out for Carnegie Mellon. I need to try to get a classical training education if all if all these people said i was that good that quickly and that many doors open for me that quickly like there's something here i gotta catch up and that's what i did i just busted my ass and and really worked and worked and worked and i wound up um getting a scholarship to the carnegie mellon school of drama um so that was kind of the path but i remember like the first show of oklahoma there was like a sea of there was a sea of letterman jackets because all my buddies had come with their girlfriends to come see me in this like Oklahoma musical thing. And, uh, and I thought that was really funny to, to, to get, to get all the jocks to come to the musical because they're coming to see me. It was pretty funny. And at six, five, they probably were going to give you too much shit anyway. So, nah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> so how I, I read though, you know, whether it was getting flashed so quickly mm-hmm. when you got out to LA, was it, was that also fairly quickly then? Like as soon as you had gotten to town? Yeah, that was my first audition when I got to LA. If you can believe it, um, you know, it didn't happen overnight. There were, you know, it's like, you know, I, I went into audition for Peter Parker, which was, I knew I wasn't going to get, but I learned all the, the flash audition sides. And so I wore a different shirt, took my glasses off and did the flash sides in the cashier and said, okay, wow. Um, you'd be great for this part. I want you to meet Sam Raimi. And so the following week I, I, uh, she got me a gig. I got paid 500 bucks to um, screen test all of the Spider-Man candidates as Flash, as the character I wound up playing. And uh, But then that was June. I didn't hear back from them until like November. 
you know? So then November, they're like, we want you to come in and screen test again. So I went in and screen tested again, just for me, like not screen testing the other Spider-Man. It was all about me this time. So I went into improv and, and like bullied the executive producer, Grant Curtis. And uh, I used to cluck like a chick and I was slapping him in the mouth. And then uh, the casting director, Francine Baszler, uh, you know, I put my arm around her like she was Mary Jane and was kind of like hitting on her. You know what I mean? So it was like a really funny kind of improv session where like I was not shy <laughs> about any of it. And um, I remember sitting with Sam Raimi after and he was looking at my resume, you know, which is fresh out of Carnegie Mellon University Drama School. And there's like, you know, college plays on it and stuff. He's looking at my, you know, my resume. First and he aid. Turns to me and, he, and he goes, but you want to Carnegie Mellon, right? Like he's trying to find a way to trust me. <laughs> you know? Uh, and then, you know, eventually, eventually I got the role, but it was kind of a, you know, it took, it was a process. Okay. So there was there, and I, I know the Dungeons and Dragons story. I know that you've talked about it with Colbert. I, I don't know if I believe the article that said Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is actually on the wait list because we, I know we have, we have an email, we have a life advice question about it a little bit later on, which I know. Uh, you're Kareem, about. No, I'm at, I'm at Kareem shooting big bang theory. Uh, he, he like signed a jersey, you know, gave me a signed jersey and, and he's like, I'd love to come over and learn how to play. I was like, all right. So yeah, that's actually, that actually is, is correct. So was there a comic book part of you too then? Like if you liked all this different stuff so that when you, like I grew up and I loved Spider-Man. All right. You know, I like Spider-Man. I like Wolverine. And then I'll admit like even some of the, the ways the, the, I don't want to sound like a hater or anything, but like the way the comic book thing plays out, it feels like it's this collective where it's just the Marvel part of it. Where I think, you know, what always worked about Spider-Man was Peter Parker. Like he was just, mm. he represented everybody's insecurities. He represented all these different things. And you actually became mm. more interested in Peter Parker's storyline than maybe even Spider-Man's, even if that doesn't make any sense. I don't know yeah. if that's necessarily happening all the time anymore. But was that part of your, like, look, I'm sure you're just trying to get a gig. Who cares? It's Flash. It's awesome. But it seems like there's a background there for you as well, which also, you know, relates to some of these other projects you've taken on. Yeah, definitely. And I think... um, yeah, I mean, whether I was, yeah, I mean, I I read all the Todd McFarlane Spider Mans growing up, um, so I knew the character, I knew the world, I knew I had a shorthand of who everybody was, um, but yeah, I mean, that was a lifestyle. You grew up, you, you know, you went to comic book stores, arcades, um, and 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 then you know, role playing stores or gaming stores. So you're, you know, there was kind of like a like a circuit where you can meet kids that were into that kind of stuff. And um, and and it, they were all interconnected. Even like sometimes like heavy metal could lead you to Dungeons and Dragons, you know. But um, but yeah, that's that's kind of how it was for me. I mean, it, it was really this um, you know, again, it's like I found myself in high school making my own movies, and you know, years before that, I found myself doing the equivalent of what a showrunner does which is writing these yeah. tv episodes and these you know epic stories and then casting my friends or my friends make these characters and then get to improv with me in this world that i've created and roll dice and see if they land you know which included math which i'm a, like my math brain very math brain uh, and was really good at math growing up. So like that kind of appealed to me in this way, but really, you know, when you talk to any of those kids that were in those like adventures that I ran as, as, as kids, they remember them all and they'll regurgitate them to me. Like they, they remember them still in their forties. Like th those are like burnt into their brain. So 
there was really something special about the stories, that type of storytelling. And then, like I said, you know, I find myself years later and, um, you know, people know me as that guy and they know that I understand that type of material. So I think a lot of times people bring me that material, send me that material, offer me, you know, whether it's, you know, love, death and robots or metal Lords or, um, um, the spine of night or some of these great heavy metal animated things I've gotten to do. Um, those have come to me because I think people know that I understand the genre. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, when I was looking into Moonhaven, um, you know, I love kind of like really trying to get your arms around at projects because they are really, it's a massive task, right? It's a massive undertaking of like, okay, we've got this concept and yes, that would be cool, but how do we actually execute this? So how did you execute what is, what is a pretty, you know, big chunk of, of trying to figure out uh, the science fiction part of it and also sort of a future part of it as well? Yeah, most of that's on the shoulders of, uh, you know, the writer's room, especially the show creator, Peter Ocko. Um, You know, you get into science fiction, you get into high fantasy, you know, there's there's some like high flutin ideas, you know, we're going to be in outer space. So what's anchoring this to Earth or what's, you know, what's anchoring this to reality? Because I really think that the good science fiction, the good superhero movies or comic book movies are the ones that don't treat it like a comic book movie. You know, they, they treat it as though it's, you know, it, it's a real drama, you know, um, between people and the, and the, and the kind of the special effects are, are secondary. So for me, it was about taking this character, you know, in my case, who was like, you know, former military, very cutthroat would have been the equivalent of like, almost like CIA, um in level intelligence and then you mix that in and 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 and, oh by the way he might have like a latent psychic ability you know and and when you kind of mix that when i take a look at that on the page i go oh my god what a challenge to take that and make it feel lived in make it feel real like when you get done with the scene you really believe after a psychic you know, and so and so kind of attaching that to parts of me or finding parts of me that like believe those things um, was a really fun process because of like, for example, you know, my great grandmother comes from Armenia and she escaped the genocide like against the number, like against the odds. She should not have lived on or escaped. And um, she made it through an internment camp you know, gone on a boat, came to the United States, like just survived. And, um, and everyone said that she had magic powers. Then instead of going to the doctor in Worcester, Massachusetts at that time, people would line up on the porch to see her because she knew how to heal broken bones, mend things. And she would read the coffee grinds on the bottom of the coffee cup, you know? So they said that she had powers. So for me, it was like coming in, you know, with something grounded, a really grounded take on this character. Um, you know, but also, and also like, you know, the idea that like, you know, I, I, like, I think people that, that can go places in their mind or, you know, there's a rhythm to it. They have to get in a rhythm and then bang, you know, a lot of cultures, they have to get in a rhythm. So it was like creating where my character's rhythm came from. And it was in his hands, you know, that he had this rhythm and that could send him into a trance. And so I come to the table with all this stuff and now I'm talking to Peter and Peter's like, you know, I'm like, where did this character come from? You know, when you wrote, when he came up with this, where did it come from? He's like, Joe, I have no idea. It just came to me. <laughs> so him saying that then gave me all the room in the world I needed to do what I wanted with this character, which was like 
really fun. And I'm explaining all this, you know, the Armenian stuff. And, and he's just nodding, going, sounds great. Because he had no idea, you know, how to make <laughs> this character real. And I think the first two directors were the same thing. They just, they were like, we read the script and we had no fucking clue how somebody was going to play this. So what do you think? And so I really did have a lot of room, which, which for me was great. Because um, I think he does come off as like, is real, you know, hopefully like a real die, even though he's on the moon and he's 180 years in the future. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, when I was going through it, I was like, all right, you know, I can't wait again. So Moonhaven AMC yes. Plus will be July 7th. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old work outfit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day. This is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class, that just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out now. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Ryan. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Today's Life Advice is presented by Modelo. It could be about love, money, or in-laws. Life is always going to throw some serious challenges your way. And that's why Modelo celebrates people who show resilience and courage in the face of adversity. Modelo, brewed for those with a fighting spirit. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Okay, so I want to get to a couple of these. I don't want to spend too much more of your time. I know you got, you got stuff going on here. Uh, these are different categories of Life Advice questions. Usually, guys are asking about meeting women, um, which again... You know, I don't know. I swear to God, man, every interview I read about you was like, he's really good looking. And so is his wife. And I was like, does he get sick of talking about this? Um, which I hey, always where's think that, is, where's that conversation going to go? It's like, okay, thank you very much. Now, <laughs> here's what work. I always think is, is kind of funny. Like the, there's always the hockey wise one where it'd be like, can you believe how hot that guy's wife is? And be like, I can. He's 28. He makes eight figures. He's from Quebec. Like who else was she going to date? So, well, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of that where, at least for me, like when I, when I was courting my wife, she was coming off of a really, um, long relationship. And so, you know, I said to her, if you need to be single, I understand. I don't, I won't like it. And I can't promise you I'll be around at the end of it. You know, your self-discovery process, I can't promise you I'll be there, but like, I'll live with it, you know, and I'll understand. I said, but before you make your decision, I want to show you something. And I reached back and I had just come from the airport and I pulled out the People Magazine's number one bachelor in the world issue where I was on the cover. And I put it onto the table and I just said, numero uno. 
And then I slid the magazine over to her. And, uh, you know, I knew like my, my chips were, I was never going to have more chips on the table. You know what I mean? I was never going to have more cachet than the number one bachelor in the world. And I was also warned that title is not going to last very long, pal. So it was one of those moments where, you know, I pushed this magazine across the table and of course she picks it up and starts flipping through it. And I go, Hey, you're, you're skipping past my article. She said, yeah, I want to see who else is on the list. And anyway, that, but that was it. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, she is the most beautiful woman in the world and, and the funniest and the coolest. And you know what I mean? So it was like, if ever there was a match for me, it was like, that's it. You know, that's it. That that's that's what I want. So I didn't even expect to get that story. So now there's there was guys writing this down, being like, I'm not sure that I'll be around once. And then they were like, Oh, I don't have the People magazine prop. So that's not gonna that's not gonna fly as much. I, I appreciate that she liked you with lacking self confidence that, that but what a great comeback by her though to keep sifting through um, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, she yeah, she's she's good at that. Yeah, she's funny. Okay, so uh here we go. The question is this my roommate is too hot. So, um, my, my roommate <laughs> and good friend has a list celebrity, uh, looks I'm talking crazy boy band ass. And while I don't consider myself bad looking, I have my own talents. Uh, I guess he DJs. Um, there's quite a large gap between our looks and charisma. There's been a trend recently with the last few girls that I've been hanging out with who seem to be more into my roommate than me. Once they eventually meet him, we're boys and my roommate understands oh. the game and always has my back yet. Still, whenever I start hanging out with a new girl, they always seem to be get, to, uh, get distracted uh, when they meet him. And then their interest in me goes away often for good. This is even more challenging because it's hard to insulate new girls from him since we live together and hang out together a lot. So this means very early on in these new relationships, they are bound to meet. Maybe there's girls uh, that wouldn't work out anyway. Maybe it's a good filter. Um, essentially he's asking any thoughts. He'd appreciate any advice on this, man. This is going to have to be like one of those goodwill hunting situations where you're going to have to go to their place, dog. <laughs> you might just have to go, let's go to your place. No, no, no. I haven't seen your place. And nah, that's, it's a mess. Let me, let's go to yours. <laughs> yeah. You would have thought the Harvard girl in goodwill hunting at some point was like, can I just see, your apartment like if you don't get to see the guy's apartment yeah. 10 times yeah but i don't know that dorm cafeteria all right uh here we go or yes yeah, so i don't know maybe that's it go to her place till like she's hooked and then like you know then you're the man then you've come back you know you could do this though you could do like i remember i went on a ski trip and it was going to be a bunch of people that didn't quite know each other yet and the guys in the other car trashed me to every girl that was in the car before we showed up. So like the first 48 hours, I was at this ski house going, the vibes are off. The vibes are totally off. And then once everybody gets to know me a little bit more, they were like, yeah, we don't know why those guys are trashing you. It was like, oh, because the ratio was really bad. And they just sabotaged uh, me. So you could, if that roommate really is your boy, you could be like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to say like all sorts of fucked up stuff about you before you meet this one. Just And if you're my guy, you're down with that. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. Thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. a tough situation. Yeah. All right. Um, this one's about uh, wed marriage. So I'm not married. So we're going to defer to you on this one. 61175. Guys like to include that. Don't ask why. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, my my, my uh, max, max deadlift is. <laughs> we actually do get that a lot. So, you know. <laughs> 
It's amazing. It's All amazing. right. I'm having some major relationship issues with my wife, and I'm not sure what to do. To give you some background, just turned 30. My wife is 29. It'll be our seven-year wedding anniversary in a couple of months. I've always been very happy in my marriage. Neither of us has ever stepped out or had any major issues. Um, however, for the last six to 12 months, can't quite pinpoint the exact time. We've been less and less happy. Honestly, I don't know what happened. Things about me she rarely commented on, she now complains about all the time. It seems like everything I do is annoying to her, and now she will quickly go from annoyed to angry now much more than before. For example, I'm a terrible planner. I don't like to do it. Usually works out worse if I'm the one in charge and I actually do better winging most things. This weekend, I failed to plan something for this uh, to do at the end of a work trip she tagged along for when a lot of my colleagues had made plans with their wives. I would argue it's likely most of their wives made... All right, so this is getting into a lot of other stuff here. Basically... <laughs> He doesn't want to be divorced, but he's he's worried that there's a bunch of new signs here at seven years in. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think before before pulling the divorce card, go to have have a third party to sit down between the two of you, and then ask ask the hard questions, like you know what I mean, like get in there, like don't don't throw softballs, you know, but but have somebody in there, and um, because. Look, man, you know, it takes two and two people have to be committed to working it out. And if she's like giving up and she's not committed to working it out or getting better or cleaning up her side of the street, then there's not much you're, you're going to be able to do with that, especially if she's being mean to you. That's not cool. That's not that's, that's a really bad sign. Yeah, here's what I don't understand. If there's something that you could just do better, like if you're not a planner. And I get the point there where they were with coworkers and all the other coworkers had made plans with their wives. And then you're the one guy that didn't do it. Wouldn't you just want to fix that? Wouldn't you want to like, you may be a bad planner, but is it that hard to say, Hey, get a dinner reservation. There's apps for this. You know, he's got to do. do some work too. Yeah. Yeah. He's got work to do also. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. This one is a little more specific to you. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, Six four two fifty five. Not a pro baseball player. There's a little thing about me working out with, with pro baseball players. You'd have to listen. Four to four, four four forty. <laughs> four four forty. A lot of four four forties checking in. Um, yeah, yeah. Not a pro baseball player, but I look average for a thirty four year old dad. I don't have a question that's applicable to many people, but uh, this is one worth asking. My buddies and I are from Pittsburgh, and one of my friends saw Joe at a gym. My friend walked up to introduce him and said something like, "Hey." Um, I don't know if I should pronounce it the wrong way that everybody does or not. But I guess he had said like, hey, you're Joe Manginello. Uh, yeah, he, maybe. He, yeah, right. He goes, you pronounced it wrong. Um, Joe very politely corrected him. So my buddy gave that last name a second attempt and got it wrong the second time. Joe corrected him politely a second time. My buddy profusely apologized. They chatted for three more minutes, said Joe was extremely nice, and they parted ways. I don't know why my friend group finds this so funny, but we do. And needless to say, we have crushed our buddy for this. It's been five or six years. So is it now time to let him off the hook, or can we continue to give him endless shit for essentially getting his your name wrong twice after you corrected him? Listen, man, he's not alone. Hulk Hogan did it. The Rock did it at a, at a premiere of a movie we were in. <laughs> like, listen, you mispronounced my name. You're in good company. It's just kind of how it is. So I, believe me, I deal with it every day. It's like it's like the bane of my existence. So, you know, I, I totally get it. And, um, you know, a lot of times it, it can create really funny moments where, you know, where, you know, we can then like hang out and talk and stuff like that. So, which sounds like that was the case. Um, should you let him off the hook? 
I don't know, man. What Denny Green? What would Denny Green say? If we, and we let him off the hook. But think about it this way: this now gives new juice to the story because we talked to you about it, <laughs> yeah, and now so now they're going to listen, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is tacked on a few more years. All right, last one: six three one ninety eight. Very specific weight here, in case that matters to you. Yeah, that's like a good. Show. That's like a good yeah. defensive back weight cornerback. Shut that corner. 29 yeah. years old, still at 198. That means he's probably going to stay that size, too. It's a good sign. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm emailing about one of our players in our Dungeons & Dragons group. I know Joe's an avid fan player. and His, his character, or Archon, I'm going to get that wrong. Sorry. No, you got that. it right. That's okay. it. Yeah. Is uh, truly an amazing character. Even enough pandering. The backstory here is we have an eight-player <laughs> campaign that's gone on for about six years now. We're pretty much done. They're level 19s, for those wondering. Yeah. The party consists of six players that related either by blood or married uh, and two close friends. The player in question is one of the close friends. Over the course of the campaign, he's gotten worse as a player, has had what I like to call main character syndrome. He thinks he's the main character of the story and is playing as such. At first, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary because he was playing hard. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Because he was playing a bard. My apologies. Um, <laughs> but it quickly got worse and worse from interrupting important backstory role play for other players, making decisions about thinking about the group. Um, God, to making a simul simulacrum? Simulacrum, yeah. All right, sorry, man. Of himself, or role playing with himself. Uh, not one of occasion. God, this is long. So recently he said, Thanks, everyone, for assisting me in the fight, even though he went unconscious in the second round of combat. It all really culminates when real life stuff has entered the equation. He recently broke up with his girlfriend at eight years under normal circumstances to be fine. Came to find out he's been cheating on her for the last three or four years with various girls and all culminated with him breaking up with her to get a 19-year-old and he's 25. Jesus, this email's going in a million different directions. I apologize for not proofreading this one more. Wow. Okay. But I mean, it is showing that Dungeons & Dragons players can and do get laid. This is actually great for the community. Yeah. All right. So the email continues. I hope there's a point here. He didn't even tell uh, his ex-girlfriend that he was cheating on him, even though he told us he'd already talked to her about it. So one of our players was texting the ex about it. She found out about the cheating through another player. This caused a huge rift between the cheater and the other player. Now a lot of the group doesn't want him to play in the next campaign that we've already prepared and made characters for including him in. Now, look, uh, I can see that he is an egotistical, narcissistic, compulsive liar that is also a cheater and not very fun to play with. It feels like they may have their answer there, Joe, but uh, we'll continue this. It's probably past the point of no return with some of our group, but all of us have their faults. All right. He's pretty considerate when it comes to being a friend, but he's also fun to hang out with. Also, kicking out someone who's been in our group of six years is hard, and kicking him out would probably end the friendship there. So basically, I'm asking, what's the best way of telling him we don't want him to play in the next campaign? Thanks again. Woo, man, the drama. There's nothing like Dungeons and Dragons group drama. Kick out How about one guy. of the other players? How about the other players exposing him to the ex-girlfriend? We didn't even, who knows what was happening that day. Dude, that's just bro code. That's like bro code stuff. It's like, no, sorry. Yeah, you can't, you can't live like that, man. No, you're out. You're out. Sorry. You, you, you've thrown yourself off the island. You have been exiled. Go find your own Dungeons and Dragons group. You're out. You should go, go in the corner and think about what you did. For sure, man. Get him out of there. And you got to have that talk. You just be like, hey, man, this is going to work. This is a social thing as much as it's a fun thing. And like, which you did cross the line, people are pissed. So it's not to say that we can't all kumbaya somewhere down the line. But for now, can't do it, man. Just can't. I'm sorry. And you can't play solo, right? No. <laughs> you need like 
And, and also once you have like a really great dungeon master and a group like that, those are like your friends, like, cause you're spending one of your precious nights a week socializing with this group. So that becomes your friends. That becomes who you hang out with, who you see every week, you know, it's like your poker group, man. Yeah. No, that's, you know, yeah. you can't, this is doubt. Yeah. This is, doesn't sound like solitaire. Uh, thank you for playing along with us there at the end. We covered a lot <laughs> sure. of different topics, man. Uh, thanks for the time, Joe. Good luck with the new show. We'll talk again. All right. This is fine. Thank you. Today's life advice was presented by Modelo. Modelo knows it doesn't matter where you come from. It matters what you're made of. And when you need a little advice, it never hurts to have someone in your corner cheering you on. Modelo came from small beginnings and never gave up. That's what makes a lion. Modelo, brewed for those with a fighting spirit. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Life advice is rr at gmail.com. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. Uh, Ringer, Spotify, the Rhyme Soul Podcast. Mm-hmm.